Well, one of my favorite moments of the week is when I take out the trash, seriously. Uh, It's not that I enjoy the chore itself, but it it kind of is a a moment in my week. Our our trash day is Monday, and so uh, on Sunday nights, after I put the kids to bed, I take the cans down to the end of the driveway, and I kind of just pause, and I I take in a deep breath, like a few feet away from the garbage, of course. But I I, kind of, you know, savor the moment, end of a week, beginning of a week, and uh, one of the things I like to do is actually look up into the sky for a minute. Because I don't know about you, but I I just get filled up with this this tremendous sense of awe and wonder when I see both of those stars shining down on me. The suburbs is a terrible place to be a a stargazer. It's actually kind of a a tragedy. Most of us don't realize just how much of the night sky is blocked out by light pollution. I I recently ran across some pictures that an artist made uh, of what different um, global skylines would look like if all of the lights went out, if there was no electricity and all you saw was the sky as it really would be. Uh, Check this one out. Isn't this amazing? And I love this one. This one's over the bean. Isn't that glorious? Oh my goodness. Uh, When I see that, it puts into perspective what uh, most of humanity before the invention of the electric light would have seen on clear nights. And it actually gives a window into one of the, the most important stories in the Bible uh, that happens early on. Uh, it's the beginning of God's plan to rescue the world from sin and death. It's about 2000 BC and God approaches a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, you are going to have a great family and your family is going to change the world. And, and when Abraham hears that, he, he just laughs at God. He says, look, I'm, I'm in my 90s. My wife is in her 80s. And we always wanted kids. We tried and we tried, but it, it, we couldn't have them. And it's broken our hearts. So God takes Abraham and he, he brings him outside. He says, out here alone in the desert, look up into the sky. And what Abraham sees is he sees that sky blanketed with stars. And God says, count them. And how, how do you begin to count all those stars. And and God says, your descendants will number more than the stars of the heavens. Now, real talk here, that's really mean. Like, like, you shouldn't say that to someone. You take an infertile couple who who lives in a culture where to be childless is to be seen as a, a curse from God. And they've tried and they tried. They always wanted kids. And you say, you're gonna have more descendants than you can count. It's just cruel unless it's true, unless God can keep his promise. We are in the last week of our current Bible Savvy series. We have been reading through the book of Leviticus. Uh, We started back in September on this uh, four-year Bible reading plan we've been doing together as an entire church. Uh, A lot of you, thousands of you, have been following along in Bible Savvy journals or in Epic journals uh, with the kids or following along on the app, and it's been great. Uh, There have been so many of you who are uh, reading the Bible for the first time, and it's really cool to find out how many new Bible readers there are. Uh, And actually, for some of you, you're saying, you know, I read the Bible some, but I've never really read some of these parts of the Bible. So you're new to this uh, section of Scripture. And when we put together the plan, we realized there would be parts of Scripture that would be kind of challenging, and that as people who are new to reading those, we would want to come alongside you and uh, give you some support. So we decided we'd have a couple of times a year uh, a weekend teaching series that coincided with the plan, uh, and we'd work through it. And we specifically picked Leviticus because we know uh, that Leviticus has kind of a reputation, kind of, kind of a drag. Uh, I have frequently called it in the past the graveyard of Bible reading plans. Uh, we're hoping we can change that with this series. Um, but we understand why it's hard. 
uh, handing you Leviticus is basically saying, okay, here is a legal document from a Near Eastern tribe from the Bronze Age. Tell me what it means and how it applies to your life. So we know you're going to need some help, and that's okay. But even as I say that, uh, there's something even more important that we want to keep in mind. Paul tells us that all of Scripture, all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. All of it. And so when we read the hard stuff, even stuff like Leviticus, we've got to keep in mind a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, we've got to be careful not to overplay just how irrelevant or boring the book may be. We've got to remember, these are the words of God. This is a message from the maker of the universe, and it tells us precious, precious things about who he is and what he desires and what he thinks about us. I have actually been surprised, and I'm not just saying this because we're in this kind of series, but I've been surprised as I've studied the book of Leviticus closer than I ever have in my life over the last few months, that it has actually become one of my favorite books in the Bible. I read it now, and you know what I see? I see an expression of love from God. A God who is so passionate about his people that he says, I want to move into the neighborhood. I want you to build me a tent to live in, build the tabernacle so that I can move in down the street uh, right next to you so that you can be in my presence and I can be with you. That's how much I love my people. That's what God's saying. And we read it and we see the mercy of God. God who would say to sinful people like me, you cannot be in my presence because I am too holy. You would never stand it, but I am going to make a way. I'm going to give you these sacrifices that will cleanse you and forgive you so that you can come and be with me. And we see the wisdom of God. God who says, I want you to live and not to die. So I'm going to give you good laws, laws that tell you this is the way to life and this is the way to death. Go this way. And we see the the festivals and the feasts and the priesthood and all of these other details that, that you dig in, you realize they are full of celebration and joy and wonder. And there's so much good stuff in here. It is a precious, precious gift, and it would be a shame for us to toss it aside and say, I don't need that. It's irrelevant to me. Second thing to to keep in mind, too, is that uh, there are sections of the Bible that are challenging, and that's okay. That's okay. Uh, Something being challenging is not an argument for not doing it. Uh, Learning to play the piano is challenging. Uh, Learning to swing a golf club is challenging. Learning to express love to another person in a relationship is challenging. Most of the things that we think are worth doing take some learning and some practice. Sometimes we'll even pay people to help us learn how to do that. But for some reason, when we come to God's word, we open it up. And if it isn't easy and obvious and just, you know, makes sense right away, sometimes we we get frustrated with that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The way we learn how to read even the challenging parts of the Bible is actually right at our fingertips. The best way to do it is to just keep reading. Uh, to keep reading again and again. Uh, you don't need a degree. You don't need to be a genius. You just need to keep reading. There, it's kind of a cycle. The more you read the Bible, the more of it makes sense and the more you want to read it. And the less you read the Bible, the less of it you, you can understand and the less you want to do it. So you got in, to get in that good cycle of reading it regularly so it starts to be more desirable. Uh, the, it's really important to actually do this in community. That's why we've done this as a coordinated plan as a church. Because we know that you're going to get more and more out of it if you're talking with your family, your friends, you're talking with your community group about what you're reading. Uh, We know a lot of families are doing this, so I want to say a word to the parents because uh, a lot of you have given us great feedback about how good this is to be reading the Bible with your kids. But uh, again and again, we hear people saying, you know, sometimes, especially these longer Old Testament readings, like I don't don't know how to sit down with, you know, an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old and talk about, you know, 50 verses of Leviticus. 
And so let me give you just one tip with that. Uh, one thing you can do is when you're doing your own reading in the Bible and you come across a, a longer, more challenging passage, uh, you, can, you don't have to read all of that to your kids. You can say, you know what, as a family, we're just going to talk about one paragraph, you know, six verses, eight verses, 10 verses that we can digest together. Because here's the thing, it is better if you say, we're going to read a little bit less, but we're going to read it every day, we're going to do it regularly, than to say, you know what, when we run across those big ones, we're just going to, you know, ignore it. Get in the rhythm, get in the habit, even if you have less. Now, that's one of the tips that's actually here in the back of these epic journals. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the uh, Kids World team has put together a bunch of tips on how to do this as a family. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, uh, there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. Well, let's actually turn to our passage for today. Um, interestingly enough, we're not in the book of Leviticus today because this week we finish our Leviticus readings and we start numbers. So I'm going to do the first uh, reading of numbers to get us kicked off on that book. So turn to numbers chapter one. What I hope to do today uh, is do three things. I want to give you some context for the book of Numbers. Uh, I want to uh, give you uh, some understanding of how to read this chapter, chapter number one, uh, and then give you an overview of what you're going to encounter over the rest of the book. There is a fourth thing that is in your weekly welcome that I'm not going to get to, so don't stress about that. So we just got uh, three things here. And the first is some context for the book of Numbers. So I want to tell you the story of the Pentateuch, uh, which I have stolen a, a subtitle from The Hobbit to describe it, it's, it's, the story of the Pentateuch is there and back again, there and back again. Uh, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Penta means five. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's also called the Torah in Hebrew, which is the Hebrew word for teaching or instruction. And without a doubt, no one's debating it. These are the most important books in the Old Testament, the most important books. They're the foundational documents for the nation of Israel. And if you want to understand the rest of the Old Testament, and really the rest of the Bible, it, 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 you've got to understand what's going on in these books. Uh, and what helps to understand these books is to realize they are one big story. It's not a collection of random lists and laws just kind of thrown together. It is one grand narrative from beginning to end. And the, the gist of that story is there and back again. It starts in the Garden of Eden starts in paradise. Things are perfect. Uh, human beings are in the presence of God. Uh, human beings have a high calling from God to represent him to the world. Uh, we have meaningful relationships with other people, and we're in a fruitful land that's given to us to cultivate and enjoy. But it doesn't last. When, when people receive that high calling from God, uh, they turn to God and they say, you know what? We don't actually want to do that. Uh, we want to go our own way and set our own course. And when, when that happens, human beings are evicted from paradise. It actually helps to think about it kind of spatially, geographically. We've got this turf of fruitful land that God's given, and God sends the people out, sends our first parents out into the wilderness to wander around, uh, to struggle and to, uh, and, and to suffer out uh, in the world on their own. And, and out here in the wilderness where we're wandering, uh, we're cut off from God. Our relationships are poisoned and poisonous. That fruitful land that we were supposed to enjoy is infested with thorns and thistles. And, and I, I think this image is actually really helpful because it's a, a metaphor for a, what a lot of us feel. You ever feel that in your heart? Like you're just, you're, you're outside of paradise. You're wandering, you're searching, you're looking, you're struggling, and you're f wishing you could find some way back into that good place of peace and satisfaction and wholeness. It's a human condition. The story of the Pentateuch is the question, how do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to paradise? This is where that promise to Abraham comes into play. When God pointed to the stars, he told Abraham, you're gonna be a great nation. 
And and not only that, but I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you. You're going to represent me to the entire world. You're going to have a high calling and I'm going to bring you to a good land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, what God promised to Abraham is you and your family are going to find the way back to paradise, into the presence of God, to that place of high calling, to restored relationships, to a fruitful land. But how how does God keep a promise that big? Well, it starts with just one miracle. It starts when Abraham is 100 and Sarah, his wife, is 90, and they have their child, Isaac. One child, the first step back to paradise. The story of the Pentateuch follows Abraham's little family. Uh, As generation after generation passes and the family starts to grow, and each generation they pass on that promise, we're going back to paradise, we're going back to Eden, we're going to be in a good land, we're going to be a great nation. Promise, generation after generation after generation. The hard part, though, is that for a lot of that time, about 400 years, Abraham's family are slaves in Egypt. No hope of seeing that promise fulfilled. Until one day, God sends Moses to be a rescuer for the people, to lead them to the promised land. So he sets them free, and as they're marching to the promised land, they stop on the way at Mount Sinai, at a place where God is going to meet the people and say, this is how you're going to be my people, how you're going to live in this new land that I'm going to give you. So they spend about a year getting instructions from God, and then they pack up to go, and they're finally going to head to the promised land. And that is where the book of Numbers begins right before the people leave for the promised land. So let me read to you Numbers chapter one, or at least part of it. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai on the first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, each of them the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. Here we go. From Reuben, Elazar son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shalumiel son of Zeroshaddai. From Judah, Nashon the son of Amminadab. From Issachar, Nathaniel son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, uh, Elishama the son of Amihud. From Manasseh, Gamaliel the son of Pedazer. From Benjamin, Abidin, the son of Gideoni, from Dan, Ahizer, the son of something or other, from Asher, Pagel, the son of Akron, from Gad, Elisaph, the son of Duel, from Naphtali, Ahir, the son of Enan. We did it! (laughs) These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been specified, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families. The men 20 years old or more were listed by name, one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then the the rest of the chapter is uh, going through uh, each of the tribes and saying how many people were counted in the census. It goes through uh, 11 of the tribes, excluding the Levites. And then in verse 44, it says this. These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, do you mean that? 
Are you thankful for Numbers chapter one? Because I, I know it's just a couple of pages, but there are a few things that God knows that I think he could fit on a couple of pages that I would like better than a list of names, you know, a cure for hiccups, a recipe for the best chocolate chip cookie, cookies ever. I mean, anything might have been better than a list of names. So here's my goal. My goal is to make you say, thank you, God, for giving us a list of names. But to do that, I'm going to teach you how to actually read a list of names. So let me give you some tips with all this. Uh, I'm going to give you four questions that you can ask when you run into a list of names in the Bible that will help give you some clues about this. But before I do that, let me give you sort of a fail safe on this, okay? Uh, When you run into uh, some names in the Bible and you're like, I cannot make heads or tails. I don't know what to do with this. Uh, you can always say this. You can always say, God sure loves people, okay? Uh, how many of you watch the credits at a movie? Okay, Any, anybody? Okay, a lot of us do. We, we sit through the credits at a movie because we know they've got those kind of like teasers at the end for the big blockbusters and stuff. Um, but most of us, we don't actually watch the credits, like read the names and think, oh, who was that person? What did they do? But what if I told you one of your friends had worked on the movie? That's some obscure thing, you know, they had some weird title like the best boy or the third bystander from the right or something like that. But you, you would watch those credits and you would look at every single name until you saw someone that you recognized and you'd say, oh, I, I know her, I, I know him. You'd stand up and cheer, you'd be like, there, someone I know is in this movie, this is incredible. You'd get this rush of excitement. What if I told you that for every single one of these names, God got that same rush of excitement? I know that person, I, I love that person. That person is made in my image. They're precious to me. He he feels that way about every single one of these people. Imagine if it was one of your names in that list. Wouldn't you just be thrilled? And sometimes, even if I don't know what to do with the passage, it's good for me to be reminded that God loves each and every person. He loves me, but he also loves all the people that I pass by every single day. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm encountering, you know, just incidental people in my life, uh, I can treat them like a list of names in the Bible. I try to get through it as fast as I can so I can get to something I actually think is interesting. But what if my perspective was, this is a precious person who God loves with all of his heart, and I should too. I think that would change things. Now, if you are trying to actually figure out what the list is there for, I've got some questions for you. Now, the first question is this. You've got to ask, what group does this represent? What group does it represent? Because this is key. Sometimes we get sort of uh, drowning in all of the particular names and we wonder, am I supposed to know who these people are? But usually the point of a list is not about any individual in the list. The point is the group that it represents. So you've got to ask, is this a, a certain family, a certain tribe, a certain nation that's being highlighted? Uh, the only exception to that is when you come across a genealogy that's for like one of the big characters in the Bible, you know, the, the family line of David or Moses or Jesus or something like that. Then the point is that individual. But even in that case, what the list is trying to tell you is something about the group that individual came from. So you've got to ask the question, what group does this represent? And then you also have to ask, what, what would an ancient Israelite think about this group? Why would they care uh, about this group of people? Is it a a list of kings or soldiers? Is it uh, priests? Is it a a foreign nation? Why would they uh, find this group relevant? So we asked that about Numbers chapter 1. What does this list represent? Well, that uh, list of names that I kind of, you know, rattled off and stumbled through uh, in uh, 5 to 15 is a list of representatives in the newly formed government of Israel. These are the people responsible for the census. But the bigger list, that's uh, through uh, verses 20 to 43, the the results of the census are a particular group in the nation of Israel. It says it a bunch of times. Look at verse 3. 
It says, Moses and Aaron are to count according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. If you read the whole chapter, it comes up 14 times, that phrase. And so you pick up on this and you realize this is about uh, the men who are old enough to fight in a battle. This, this list represents the military strength of the nation. So we've got to keep that in mind. Here's the second question that I ask. Second question is, what comes before and after this list in the story? Because uh, none of the lists, none of the lists are just random. Uh, they are, are always in the flow of a story. You encounter one of these lists. Uh, think about it this way. If uh, someone was you know, passing by on the street and uh, they just handed you a list of names, like 500 names or something. You'd look at the list and be like, uh, why do I care about these people? Actually, what you do is you'd be like, hey, weirdo, why are you handing out lists of names? Okay, get away from me. But let's say that same person was standing at the door of a high school auditorium and they were handing out a list of names and you were coming in for a graduation ceremony. You, you wouldn't blink an eye. You wouldn't think twice because you know the story. You know what has happened over the last four years. Students have worked hard and they've studied and they, they, they've gotten all this way and they're finally completed. And you know what's going to happen next. They're going to be presented with a diploma and they're going to begin the next season of their life. And so this is a big pivot point. And so when you get that list of names, you might not know anybody on there, maybe one name on the list, but you know why it's important, why it's significant. The same is true in the stories in the Bible. You understand because you're reading the scope of the story. Now, I've already told you some of the story here in the book of Numbers. This is the nation of Israel. They've received a promise. They've been set free from Egypt. They've met with God at the mountain. And they're about to head out to the promised land for the first time. That's really important for understanding this list. Third question I ask is this. Are there any explanatory comments in the text about this list? So lists are really repetitive, but sometimes uh, in the repetition, they will throw a random you know, phrase in that says something a little bit more about a person. Or at the beginning or the end of the list, they'll tell you something about these people and why they're important. So you've got to keep a lookout for the little comments that give you a bigger picture uh, about the list. The, the fourth, fourth question I ask is, do you recognize any of the names? Do you, do you recognize any? Because uh, as you read the Bible more and more, you'll start to pick up the major characters in the stories. And if you see one of their names in a list, odds are the author of that passage wants you to notice that name. They know you know who that person is. Uh, and so they want you to pick up on that. And that might give you a clue as to why this list is important. So those are the four questions that I ask. Uh, some of those questions help more with some lists and some help more with other lists, but almost always they generate some kind of clue to help make sense of what's going on. So let's ask the question, as we look at Numbers chapter one, what does it actually tell us? And here's the message I got. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Over 400 years before this census, God pointed to the sky and made a promise to an old childless couple. And generation after generation, that promise was passed down again and again through the centuries of slavery. They held on to hope. They kept saying, it's coming one day. When is God going to do it? When is it going to happen? When will he keep his promises? And so when we get to this moment, uh, counting people might seem dull to us, but to the Israelites at the time, it was an amazing event. Because slaves don't take a census. Governments do. Slaves don't have an army. Nations do. Slaves don't organize themselves, citizens do. The act of counting the fighting men is a sign that this is a free people at last. And as it goes through the names of each of those tribes of Israel, those, those names that you recognize, you say, wait, these are the great-grandchildren of Abraham. These are names that I know, people who carried the promise. And now the promise is being fulfilled. 
And so when Moses and Aaron take account, they are not counting soldiers, they are counting stars. Because God keeps his promises. When I worked at a college, uh, every year when we had commencement ceremonies, uh, we would always say at the beginning, say, hold your applause until all of the names have been read. Because, uh, you know, if everybody claps the, between every name, it takes forever and the ceremony gets even longer. But no one ever kept that rule. Uh, I mean, how are you going to do that? You see your kid walk across the stage, you're going to clap. But you know who clapped the loudest and the longest? It was always the best moment of every graduation. It was the families of the kids who were the first people to go to college in their family. That you'd hear their name and they would be so proud. They would bring noisemakers and signs. They'd get as many tickets to graduation as they could. They'd pack the place and they'd have relatives. And, and dad would stand up and he'd be so proud of his son or his daughter. And, and grandma would have tears streaming down her face. And they, they'd hug each other and say, we did it. We worked so hard. We, we saved so much. We, we didn't think this would happen. The first person to do it, it finally happened. I, I have a feeling that something like that feeling was what the people of Israel felt. When, when Nashon, the son of Aminadab, his name is announced, we don't even know who that person is, but his family, his clan, his tribe stood up and cheered and said, it happened. This guy was a slave in Egypt, and now he is a ruler in a government. He is taking a census. He's leading a tribe. It, it's finally happened. God has kept his promises. Th there's going to be a day when we are going to hear God read a list of names. Book of Revelation says that on the last day, God is going to open up a book, the book of life. And he is going to read off a list of the name of every person who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And he's going to say, welcome into paradise to that person. And I can tell you on that day, all of us who are standing there, we've trusted in Jesus. And because of that, we have become children of Abraham, children of the promise. For every single name in that list, we are going to stand up and cheer and say, it happened the moment we had been waiting for. It's come. God has kept his promises. Thank God for a list of names. Amen? All right, that's chapter one. Let's talk about the rest of the book of Numbers. Uh, we are going to be reading this uh, book for uh, a, a couple of months here, so I want to give you an overview of what you're going to encounter. And I think the phrase that best sums up the book of Numbers is the road trip from hell, okay? Uh, let me explain. Let me actually show you the, the structure of the book. This is what I do when I first start reading uh, any book of the Bible, is I go and I look up an outline of the book. Uh, if you don't know where to find that, the easiest way to do that is to actually get a study Bible, because uh, the study Bibles at the beginning of each book have an outline overview of what's going to happen in that book. Um, and if you don't have a study Bible, I would encourage you to get one, but even if you don't, um, what's cool is that the NIV, the translation that we use around here, uh, they actually publish their study Bible notes online for free. Uh, so if you want to see the outlines for any given book, uh, you can go and find them, and we've linked to them on our website uh, at ccclife.org slash Bible Savvy in the context section, so you can check those out. And so that's what I did when I, I started reading Numbers. And this is the basic structure of Numbers. At the very beginning of the book, uh, you've got this census that's taken and a handful of laws that are given to the people. Then at the end of the book, you've got another census that is taken and another handful of laws. So you kind of have bookends to the story. But in between, there is a big story of the journey between Mount Sinai and the Promised Land and everything that happens in between. So when you read the book, you've got to read this as a story of a family road trip, okay? Uh, Moses is Chevy Chase, the Israelites are the Griswold kids in the back of the station wagon, and, you know, hijinks ensue. Uh, except it's not a comedy. Uh, it's a total disaster. 
Uh, the craziest stuff happens. They, they run into foreign armies and go to war. There's snakes that get into their camp and start, you know, biting people. They run out of food, and so God makes birds fall from the sky, and they run out of water, so God makes water rush from a rock, and at some point, the, the ground opens up and swallows some people whole. Like, the craziest stuff happens in this story. Uh, seriously, the, the, the wildest stories in the Bible are in the book of Numbers. It, it might be weird, but it's never boring. But the biggest problem on the road trip is actually the people themselves. Think of it this way. You know how kids argue in the back seat? Like, you know, she's looking at me and he crossed the line and she's stealing my air and stuff like that. <laughs> Imagine not two or three kids in the back, back seat. Imagine a million tired, hungry former slaves who are sick of walking around the desert. Okay, this book is basically one, are we there yet after another? Uh, only with angry mobs instead. And this is the way it occurs in the structure of the story. In that road trip, there are seven big stories that happen where the people whine and complain. Uh, they always find something to complain about. Uh, they complain about the desert and the food and Moses and all the leadership and so on. And they complain and they complain and complain. But complain really isn't a strong enough word. Because uh, what they're doing is not just voicing their frustration. They're looking at their circumstances and saying, you know what, if we got to go through this, I'm not sure this is all worth it. Like, I'm not sure God is actually good if he's putting us through this experience. They're looking at the stuff they're going through and saying, this is a reason not to trust God. They're not just whining, they're rebelling. The prime example of this is the middle story of those seven. Uh, so the fourth story right in the middle. Uh, the people actually arrive at the edge of the promised land. They, they get to their destination. And God says, okay, you're, you're going to go in. And before they do, they send in 12 scouts to kind of spy out the land. So these 12 guys, one from each of the tribes, they go in and they, they look around. And they, when they come back, they say, guys, it's exactly what God said. It, it, the, the land is fruitful and good. Look, look at the produce. Look at all the, uh, all the stuff that's growing there. It is amazing, flowing with milk and honey. But then they say, but the people living there, oh my goodness, there's no way we can go up against them. They portray them as giants. And they say, we felt like grasshoppers before them. And they, they, they say, they've got these huge fortresses, these massive castles. There is no way a group of slaves is gonna take on the armies of this land. And so the people, they hear that and they just freak out. They go into a panic. They say, we can't do it. What have we done? Why did we come this way? They, they, they actually say, you know what? We, we should just go back to Egypt. Let's, let's kick Moses out. Let's get a new leader. We'll have that new leader march us back and we'll just sell ourselves back to Pharaoh as slaves. It sounds crazy, but that's what they chose. They said, we'd rather have slavery than trust God. Sounds crazy, but don't we do that all the time? You say, you know what, I, I, I'd rather be a slave to pornography. I'd rather be a slave to this grudge. I'd rather be a slave to my image. I'd rather be a slave to being in control. And, and it doesn't matter how much it dominates my life or robs me of joy. I, it, it feels easier than the risk of having to trust God to really meet my needs. Too afraid. I'd rather be a slave. So the people refuse to go into the land. And they actually say, we wish we had died in the desert. When, when they say that, God says, as you wish. They refuse to go in. So God says, for the next 40 years, you can wander around the desert. That's where you can die. He says, this whole generation of adults is going to pass away. And the generation of kids, when they're old enough, they will have the chance to go into the land. That was their punishment. They got what they asked for. So the people wander and they continue to complain and they rebel and they worship other gods and they do all sorts of horrible things. 
And in the end, that generation dies in the wilderness. What's the point of these stories? Why are they in the Bible? They're there to be a warning against faith in name only. A warning against faith in name only. Because you got to remember, these are the people who left Egypt. They saw the plagues. They saw the Red Sea be part of it. They walked across on dry land, the wall of water on either side. They ate bread that fell from heaven. They stood at the mountain when God came down in a thunderstorm. They saw it. And all along the way, they kept saying, you know, we'll be true. We'll we'll, we'll keep our commitments. We'll be faithful. We'll obey. They kept making these promises. But every time, when they actually had to make a choice about what action they were going to do, they kept choosing, they kept demonstrating that they really didn't trust God. That they didn't want to obey again and again and again. They had these incredible experiences, made these incredible professions. They had all the religious talk. But when it came down to it, the evidence of their hearts was that they didn't trust God. Uh, Later on in the Bible, uh, different writers point back to this generation over and over, and they always use it as an example of what not to do. One example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The apostle Paul is writing to a, a young church in the city of Corinth, and he says, now these things, back in the book of Numbers, occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. We should not test Christ as some of them did. And do not grumble as some of them did. He's talking to people, a church, who have had religious experiences. They've made religious commitments. But he's saying, you know what? The true evidence of real faith is consistent obedience. Not perfect. You don't always get it right. But you're consistently pursuing obedience to God. That's an expression of faith. The book of James, it says, you you can say, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith, all you want, but if you can't back it up with your actions, that faith is dead. There there are some of you here who need to take this warning seriously. You you, uh, call yourself a Christian and you enjoy religious things. You appreciate a good worship service now and then. But if the only evidence of what your heart was like was your day-to-day decisions, your actions throughout your life, there might not be much evidence that you actually had a trust in Jesus Christ. It's a sobering thing. It's one of the messages of Numbers, a warning against faith and name only. Thankfully, that is not how the book ends. There's also, at the end of this book, this incredible story. Uh, It's a crazy story. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. It's about a guy named Balaam. Uh, Balaam... um, Okay, we'll get to it in the reading, so you'll see what I'm talking about. But uh, it's a story that involves an angel assassin and a talking donkey. So it's kind of a mashup between Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Shrek, which sounds really cool to me. Here's the point of why the Balaam story is in the Bible. What has happened is 40 years after the people have left the mountain and the, the, the older generation has died out, as this younger generation comes in to take the land, the nations around them start to get a little bit nervous about these new kids on the block. That was not meant to be a reference, but, you know. <laughs> Third service is what happens. Um, so they're getting nervous, and the king of Moab, a neighboring nation, hires this pagan prophet, Balaam, and he says, I want you to curse the people of Israel. So he, Balaam says, great, I'll do this, I'll do this. So he takes Balaam to a place where he can see the, the people's camp, and, and he, Balaam prays, and he gets himself worked up, ready to curse these people. And as he opens his mouth, the only words that can come out are words of blessing. 
the power of God overcomes him. And he starts predicting all of these things that the people are going to flourish and they're going to have kings and they're going to, you know, possess the land and all of this great stuff is going to happen in their future. King of Moab's like, uh, can we try again? So they go to another spot and they're like, okay, Balaam, all right, I'm going to do a curse. Here we go. Curse blessing. Okay, third time, go to the top of a mountain. You can see all of the people standing there. Balaam's like, this time I got it. This time I got it. Curse, 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 curse. Blessing. King of Moab is like, come on, man. I hired you. I'm paying you good money for this. What are you doing blessing these people? And Balaam says, look, I, I, I can only do what God lets me do. And sort of as, you know, for good measure, right after that, he blurts out like four more blessings, okay? It's really, it's really random. But here, here's what happens. Seven blessings come out of his mouth. Seven unexpected blessings. The people in the desert rebelled against God seven times. And then God arranges to have them blessed seven times before they enter into the land. An entire generation abandons God, but God doesn't abandon his people. This is the other really important message of the book of Numbers. God does not give up on his project, even if individuals or generations do. God is faithful even when we are not. He is committed to rescuing the world, even when people rebel. And that's really good news. It's the truth that gets put on full display in the events of Holy Week. When we see what Jesus did on the cross, he's saying, I am all in for people who rebel against me and curse me and abandon me. I am still committed. When Jesus died on the cross, when he rose again from the dead, what it said is God was saying, I will do anything to fulfill my purposes and nothing that people can do can stand in the way of that purpose. And so that's how we're gonna end our service. We are gonna celebrate this. We're gonna sing a song praising the name of Jesus for the fact that he came and died and rose again. And this will begin our journey into Holy Week. As we do that, we're gonna take our tithes and our offerings as an expression of faith and obedience to God. But let's pray before we do that. God, we are so thankful that you are faithful to the promises you have made. That you have never made a promise and failed to keep it. God, we recognize in our own hearts that that drift towards rebellion, that we would want to push back against you, that we refuse to trust you. God, we pray that you would make us not like the people of that generation, but that you would soften our hearts so that we would trust you and do whatever you ask. God, we pray that as we uh, go in to celebrate Good Friday and uh, Easter, that we would see your faithfulness again and again. God, we want to praise you and lift you high. In Jesus' name, amen.